So when he loses her, he just kind of collapses. He starts to get this very big and very strange idea that he has come to understand every secret of the universe, whether mathematical, material, spiritual, metaphysical, what have you. He thinks he's intuited the origins of the galaxy and eventually its fiery end because he is a person almost on God's level. This is according to him. He compares himself to God in the lecture he gives about these supposed scientific discoveries that he has intuited in his creed. And so he gives this public lecture announcing all these things, and it is, at least the way I read it, it is a public meltdown like Britney Spears attacking the minivan with the umbrella. People in the audience are like, what the hell? This is The Way Podcast. The militias needed to have a heads up that I was coming. I personally think they didn't, you know, like in chess. So that's how deep the addiction goes. I've been incarcerated most of my life. Having a conversation with them. They've been given no option, either join or die. Snipers, and it was a military. J. Cole came and hung out most of the choir session. I'm standing at the studio blast looking out into the studio. If you want to know more about The Way Podcast, go to podcasttheway.com. This is Bill with The Way Podcast on FM 91.7, WHUS Tours at the top of the hour. Today, I'll be sitting down with Catherine Babnagira. She is a writer and journalist for Slate, CNBC, NBC News, and others, along with what we're going to be talking about today. She is the author of Poe for Your Problems, Uncommon Advice from History's Least Likely Self-Help Guru. Now, we've heard of Edgar Allan Poe probably back from middle school, high school, but today we're going to dive into his story. So without further ado, let's get into it. The first thing, like very first thing, I was in this radio station studio the other day. I was talking to this guy while I'm putting stickers around and they told me, oh, you should ask about the um, three roses and bottle of French cognac that somebody brings oh, to his yeah. grave like every year. Yeah, the person was called the toaster, but actually this tradition has fallen off. Um, he used to come there on the anniversary of the death and pour out one for our mutual friend, Pell and leave the roses. But we're not, and no one ever knew who the Poe toaster was or if it might've been multiple people picking it up year after year. And now we're kind of in a gap period where no one's doing it. Oh, I've been thinking about taking it up myself, except now I've blown my cover. <laughs> yeah, because I heard uh, they'd put on a hoodie, like they'd cover up everything mm -hmm. about them. People would watch from a distance. Nobody would disrespect and try to figure it out. No paparazzi flash photography thing. <laughs> right. Very mysterious. And it stopped in 2012, I want to say. So it's been going on since like his mm -hmm. death. As far as we know, uh, I'm not sure. I can't remember when I've seen the earliest mentions, mostly in the 20th century. But it okay. certainly was going on for decades on end. Wow. So your book... Poe for Your Problems, Uncommon Advice from History's Least Likely Self-Help Guru. So Edgar Allan Poe is a famous figure, and people have written about his history here and there, and we even learned about him back in high school or middle school. What take? What makes your book unique? What makes it different? Right. So there are literally dozens of Poe biographies that have been written. It's a highly contested academic field, and just in the 20th century, there are probably five to six major Poe biographies written by very serious scholars. So there's no lack of those, but the world has never had a self-help book based on Poe's life and work, teaching us how to emulate this man who has been so wildly successful despite supposedly having done everything wrong. You know, he has a reputation as a drunk and a ne'er-do-well and someone who fought with everyone he ever worked with, which, <laughs> all of which have some truth to them. And yet there's no other American writer who has an NFL team named for one of their poems or has been interpreted in film so many dozens and dozens of times, most recently. And interestingly, Jordan Peele's Us is a kind of spoof on William Wilson or Wait, can be read so, that way. So uh, the Baltimore Ravens is it's not just the bird raven. It's based off of Edgar Allan Poe's book or a short story. Or his poem, The Raven. Yeah. So oh. I, you have 
four different major American cities claiming him because he spent time in New York, Philadelphia, Baltimore, and Richmond. There are museums and houses in each of those cities dedicated to his memory. He has 4 million fans on Facebook and only Stephen King and J.K. Rowling, Rowling, I'm never sure how to pronounce it, have those kind of fan numbers. And this when he's dead. He's been dead for 17 decades. And that's just to talk about his reputation in America, his reputation in France and Japan and Romania and parts beyond are very substantial. He's got a role in national literatures all over the globe, translated into every language. So anyway, you look at a guy like that and you say, how have you had this kind of impact when you screwed up everything in your life? And isn't that the most hopeful message for you and me if you feel like a screw up, maybe you're on exactly the right path. Maybe you're on the pull path. Yeah, because going through his history once more, you see there's a reason he is like quotation marks the king of Gothic because <laughs> it comes from an actual background. He didn't just he didn't live in some wealthy upper class happy area and say, I want to be dark today. I'm gonna I'm gonna be sad. Like, no, he actually went through some stuff. <laughs> Yeah, it definitely was not acting or posing on his part. Maybe a little bit. He was monger- He was trying to strike an image, but it's also true that his life was absolutely full of tragedy and the most grinding poverty. I mean, sometimes he and his family were starving in the literal sense, having no food. And before talking about some of that background, one thing you mentioned was he started a lot of like altercations with a lot of his coworkers and whatnot. That's one true. thing. That and also I remember hearing or reading that he would write a lot of I don't know how you'd word it, but disrespectful articles about other writers. And that was another oh, theme absolutely. of that. Yeah. Why was he always yeah, fighting everyone? <laughs> I think the way maybe we couldn't understand it exactly until the 21st century when trolling is this vast internet practice, which all of us recognize when we see it, whether it's in YouTube comments or on Twitter or on Instagram or wherever. Poe was seeking to gain attention for himself and his own writing and his own reputation by calling other people out. And I mean, this is a time-honored practice. It was going on before Poe, but the way he used it was that he would say absolutely the most vitriolic, insulting, coarse, personal things. Do you have an example? Well, for instance, when he attacked uh, Longfellow was one of the most popular poets of the age. And he, Poe, in, in about 1845, 1846, he was absolutely railing on Longfellow to the point where he started clapping back at himself. Like Poe kept the feud going. Longfellow wouldn't respond. So Poe wrote fake letters to the editor and he was the editor <laughs> um, <laughs> under a pseudonym. So causing this feud when he was literally feuding with himself a kind of shadow boxing. I can think of another example um, in his earlier critical career, say some of his first forays into this kind of trolling when he was still a fairly young man. He said about this very popular novel, like it was the silliest book in the world. It's full of gross errors in grammar. It's basically the dumbest thing I've ever seen. And I can't believe anybody would read this. It wasn't much more dressed up than that. He was always kind of coming out of the door swinging which is one more reason to love him yeah you have to appreciate that it makes me um it makes me think of in like the modern hip-hop rap community a lot of artists when they want to become famous they'll write a diss track to like some big famous celebrities trying to start something and garner attention so it sounds like a historic version of that yeah it's like machine gun kelly calling out eminem lately i don't know if you've seen i'm a fan so i'm like come on, dude, you're not on that guy's like level. <laughs> you're just doing this for attention. And it's a good strategy. It's not that I endorse it, but you understand why it works in a PR sense. It gains attention. Oh, absolutely. And I love diving into lyrics, like side note, following this theme. <laughs> One uh, thing Eminem says is, I had to give you a career to destroy it. And that's just one of my <laughs> favorite lines. <laughs> you could argue that that's how in some ways he came up because he wrote tons of you want to sound like I'm 80 years old calling them like diss tracks or whatever but he absolutely did some trolling in his time tail I get that and okay so diving back into Edgar Allan Poe so we said a bit like he has an actual gothic or dark or sad past 
there's a quite a few things to address but like what uh how does he begin like what's his life story how does it start off sure so he is born to impoverished itinerant actors in 1809 in boston and his parents he's the second child in a family that will ultimately have three children and even at the time of his birth his parents are so poor that they had to have kind of benefit theatrical performances to pay the doctor's bill from his birth. So from the very beginning, they are absolutely up against it. His mom is quite a popular actress to the point of kind of, you almost would say like akin to a pop star. She had a hit single and she was well-known and well-loved. His dad was not nearly as talented and maybe that's kind of what drove the drinking and self-pity that you kind of identify in his dad. In any case, they traveled around with their theater company and come about the time Edgar Allan Poe is two years old, his father has abandoned the family for reasons we don't really understand. The historical record is just patchy there. But anyway, he's out of the picture and his mother is 24 years old and dying of tuberculosis, which is a very common cause of death in their time. And Poe probably would have witnessed his mother's final months of decline. And it's quite a gross spectacle when someone dies of tuberculosis. There's doctors say it's like drowning in your own body. So gasping for breath, loss of energy, loss of ability to care for yourself, all of that. Poe probably had these as some of his earliest perceptions, this absolutely grotesque scene. I mean, can you imagine any, it's almost the worst thing a child can see. When Eliza dies, Poe is adopted by a, a family in Richmond. They're well-to-do, so in some ways he has really lucked out, um, if you can say that of any orphan. But he's never formally adopted by this family. These are the Allens, so this is where he gets the Allen part of his name. He grows up with them, and in some ways it's like a childhood. He gets a much superior education than he would have gotten otherwise, but he also never really fits in. He grows up in their milieu of well-to-do Richmond families, and yet he is known to be the son of poor actors. And at that time, it's probably a little bit of an overstatement to say that being the son of an actress is like being the son of a prostitute, but it's not that different. So there's this whiff of the low class about him. And he has to deal with that as he goes to school. And then um, about the time he's 17, he goes to the University of Virginia and it seems to be going well. He's a very good student. He's writing poetry at this time. And he's really eager to like cut a figure in the world. Yet he's kind of starting to fall out with his foster father, John Allen. John Allen seems to be like kind of competing with him in a way that I recognize that sometimes happens between fathers and sons or informal fathers and sons. Anyway, John Allen kind of sets him up to fail at the University of Virginia. He gives Poe a little bit of money, but not enough money to cover his actual living expenses and the fees associated with the university. So Poe, in an attempt to cover this gap between his means and his expenses, gets into an absolute crap load of gambling debt to the equivalent of today, about $50,000. Wow. Going like to a casino just back then? Sitting down playing poker with the sons of gentlemen farmers who can actually afford to lose this kind of money. Um, He's kind of playing with the other guys at the university, all of whom are super privileged characters. Very few people went to university in this day. And those who did tended to be rich men's sons. Okay. So anyway, he gets in so much trouble that he has to leave. And this results in, over time, his uh, foster father disowning him. So he's an orphan just cast out in the world by the age of 18. And that's when his, that's when things go really bad. <laughs> so if they had been bad up to this point, now they're worse because he has no means of support, very little surviving family, and really no friends who can help him. So his earliest years, of he still wants to be a writer, and he's kind of still mimicking his romantic poet heroes like Byron and Coleridge. But he's really just absolutely scraping together a living. He spends some time in the army. He eventually gets married to his very young cousin, Virginia. And even that becomes a tragic story because even though they're 
marriage is quite loving and this nightmarish replay of his mother's illness, Virginia comes down with tuberculosis and, and through wait, the last five quick, years. Quick interruption. Mm. She was 13 when he was 26, correct? I think he was 27. Yeah. So it's that yeah, relationship. But you're right. She was, okay. Which in that day is if certain circumstances are met, like the number of witnesses coming to the ceremony, that's a legal marriage. And you'd be surprised even today in many states and not just ones in the South, like you'd expect uh, 13 year olds can get married with their parents' permission. Huh. At the time though, it was not at all typical. It's not true that in the 1830s, people, women that is routinely married in their early teens. It was way more actually in line with ages of average marriage today for the same reasons that it is now, because people needed to like scrape up enough money to establish a household. Okay. But so, then building off of that too, she's also mm -hmm. his cousin, right? Yeah. The first cousin marriage was not a taboo at the time. Oh, it would okay. be legal for decades beyond this. Um, really until the end of the century, I want to say. But yes, it's still, it's an eye popper. It wasn't his own time. He lied to his friends about her age. So it's not the case that he didn't think there was anything possibly amiss about this marriage either. But it does seem to have been a love match. He, you know, I tried to be sensitive to these issues. I didn't want to gloss over these things or just make jokes about something that could have been quite awry. Uh, but to all the evidence, like it was a very loving relationship. She wrote him at least one beautiful poem that we know of, suggesting a great deal of love and devotion. And the one surviving letter we have from him to her is really beautiful to you. So. And their friends reported it that they were very devoted to each other. So it's very strange and kind of helps give him this notorious reputation. But to all appearances, he was not someone who preyed on young girls as a matter of course at all. I didn't get that vibe. Gotcha. So yeah, like our standards, like my first thought, very taboo. Like how I laugh because that, but I mean, eh, love is love, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> It's still taboo, I mean, but I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, the interesting one thing I came across in my research, looking at views of, they didn't call it adolescence in the 19th century, at least in this part of the 19th century, but only boys were thought to have a period of needing to develop and have experience. Girls basically were either kids or they were marriageable. And that, you know, happened right about puberty. It wasn't thought that they needed the equivalent, like, experience in the world, which I guess is not surprising. Gotcha. Okay. So that relationship happens. And then you mentioned it earlier, then she suffers the same fate his mother suffered, which is tuberculosis. Yeah. Um, one day in early 1842, she liked to sing and play the piano and she's sitting at the piano singing and she starts to cough up blood, which everyone understands is a sign of what they called consumption in those days. So it's, she would have had tuberculosis for a while. That's actually like a fairly late stage symptom. But yeah, from that point, her health was extremely touch and go. She would be getting much, much worse. Then she would get kind of a little bit better and then she'd get much, much worse again. So he's kind of on this teeter-totter. They were on this teeter-totter for years on end. Um, and that's when he really kind of went nuts. Yeah, and that's where the story of Edgar Allan Poe, something I had no idea about, but Eureka. This is true, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so through Virginia's illness, he really starts to lose his grip on any kind of steady good behavior. He's drinking a whole lot periodically. He describes himself as insane with long intervals of horrible sanity from the stress of her illness. He's just kind of losing it. Then when Virginia finally dies in early 1847, she's 24 years old, just like his mom. It's not a great big stretch to say that this would call on his earliest trauma and then compound it. And of course they were very close. So when he loses her, he just kind of collapses. He isn't able to function. And yet then within the year after her loss, he starts to get this very big and very strange idea that he has come to understand every secret of the universe, whether 
mathematical, material, spiritual, metaphysical, what have you. He thinks he's intuited the origins of the galaxy and eventually it's fiery end because he is a person almost on God's level. Or this is according to him. He compares himself to God in the lecture he gives about these supposed scientific discoveries that he has intuited in his grief. And so he gives this public lecture announcing all these things. And it is, at least the way I read it, it is a public meltdown like Britney Spears attacking the minivan with the umbrella. People in the audience are like, what the hell? Um, And this is a controversial piece of work, Eureka, uh, to this day, where you have some academics who defend it, saying that Poe intuited the Big Bang Theory. There was a massive book that came out earlier this year making some of these arguments. And then there are people who say basically like Poe was either a prank or he was absolutely crazy at this time. And I see it as a little bit of both. Yeah, split down the line. Like people either think he's a genius or completely insane. Yeah, and I mean, I think with Poe, the answer is always that it's a little column A, a little column B. This was kind of, it was part of his genius to be a little, well, more than a little off kilter and kind of out there. But he was also really pushing the edge and, you know, exploring some really interesting and fascinating ideas in that work. So what is this theory? Like, how does it go? It's really long. The poem, so the lecture went for almost three hours and the poem is 40,000. He called it a poem. Um, It's a piece of prose, but it goes for 40,000 words into incredible detail discussing kind of the origins of light and the darkness around stars and the primordial particle from which the universe sprang and its pathway and how it became every bit of living and non-living matter. And then eventually Poe gets to a kind of metaphysical view of these things, like what is the role of humanity in the universe? What is the role of grief in our lives? Why does everything in human life go to shit, essentially, is the big question he's asking. So the last couple of pages of the poem is these absolutely beautiful reflections on the nature of life and death and time. It's heady and weird, but I actually, it's my, I mean, for my own part, it's my absolute favorite work of Poe's. It's the weirdest and one of the smartest. Yeah, he's this brilliant guy who's completely half cracked at this moment of his life. Yeah, it sounds like a theme is like the deeper hole he goes down, the better the writing. And this sounds like the peak or the bottom peak of his writing. Yeah, I totally agree with that. He, this is the moment when he's at his wildest in his thinking. And it's a, such a cool spectacle to see that. And like, I don't, I don't, I'm not glad that he had to go through those lengths of grief, but the work that he produced is really admirable considering. Gotcha. Cause I know like the audience is really curious too, as I am too. And it's this wicked long three hour lecture and the 40,000 words, but. So what I'm understanding is he predicts the Big Bang and then he predicts sort of that becoming matter and then humans. And then I want to say like religion comes into it, too. And that's not a bad at all, like summary of what's going on. It's detailed and people have interpreted it different ways. As I read it, I'm not a scientist, right? I'm a writer and a journalist. So I tend to look at it from that lens. Some scientists say he seems to have described very presciently these theories that weren't advanced until 70 or 80 or even 100 years later. I think that it's, I think people want to see that stuff, to be honest with you. Yeah, so you think like he does this bold claim, but it's kind of like 200 years ago, it'd be like me saying people will carry something in their pockets. And nowadays we say, oh, he predicted phones, kind of like that. I don't think that's wild. No, I don't think that's wildly off. Or maybe you've had this experience. <laughs> I mean, if you've ever, when people go through something that is that shakes them to their core, think of, I don't know if you had like a freshman year roommate whose longtime girlfriend broke up with him and that guy goes off the deep end. Or my in my own adult life, the one time I had a touch of religion was after getting dumped really hard <laughs> uh, years ago. 
people just kind of, they go into a wild place and they try to explain their loss in these almost cosmic terms. And I think that's where Poe was. The five stages of grief. It's like denial. Mm-hmm. What's um, oh, what's the one with bargaining, bargaining, depression, acceptance? I want to say that's probably like a form of bargaining where like bargains, the reason they die is because of this whole plan. And that's like his bargaining, I want to say. I think you're absolutely right. I think it was just him working on his grief on a grand scale. And some people need that. I mean, it's, I find it actually admirable that that's what you do with it rather than, you know, I mean, he could have just drunk a bunch of whiskey endlessly over that. And that's not how he handled it. Well, alcohol comes into a theme later that I want to bring up too. <laughs> <laughs> but also right now, so he has this whole mental breakdown in front of an audience and this whole thing. Where's the self-help that you write in your book from that? Like, how can we take some self-help from something like that? I think the spectacle of Poe working out his grief this way suggests the way that we might work out our own grief. And I mean, it doesn't have to be that you say you lost a parent recently or lost a child or something like that, but all of us are going to encounter grief, whether it's being fired from a job, getting dumped by someone we love, or, you know, miscarriages or, you know, the loss of a parent or something like that. Grief is coming for everyone. And so the really key thing is that we understand how to have some kind of response that can be fruitful and maybe eventually could help others. And Poe's example is you bring in the entire universe to explain your grief. You go absolutely off the deep end and you leave this document that is debated by scholars for 17 decades after your death. I mean, you could do worse. So nowadays, if something like crazy bad happens to me, I should go do a TED talk and do that. <laughs> I actually, I don't think that's a bad way to handle that. It might be one of the best possible ways you could handle that. That's true. And who knows? You may stumble onto like some, whatever the next big bang theory is. That's true. You never know. All right. I'm jotting that down. <laughs> <laughs> so bring it back. We mentioned how he would attack other writers. So two writers I found he actually did the opposite he looked up to were Lord Byron and Samuel Taylor mm-hmm. Coleridge absolutely what, yeah one particular made them stand out to him Byron had Byron was kind of the major celebrity of the major literary celebrity of Poe's youth he was writing in the a couple of decades really before Poe's mature career was here but um, Byron, in addition to being a utterly brilliant and extremely prolific poet, also helped to advance theories uh, or advance romantic thinking. And that time, we're talking capital R romantic, romanticism, not romantic in the lowercase sense. And this was a school of thought and literature that is very, even scholars say, is very hard to define but it was characterized by a kind of reaction against 17th century emphasis on reason and rationality. People lean into their emotions really hard. They prized feeling over rational thinking. They wanted to spend a whole lot of time in nature. And they also like wanted to practice free love in a sense. And Byron (laughs) practiced a lot of free love. Um, Byron he had something like 400 lovers and he died by the age of 36. So he went through some folks and uh, all while he wrote up these adventures and these absolutely brilliant poems. So what's not to admire about this career? Um, Poe may not have known all of the gritty details of that, but he certainly didn't probably didn't know of Byron's affairs with men, but he did admire Byron's celebrity and his genius. So he was, in in his early days especially, he was kind of part of the cult of Byron and he was writing Byronic poems and sort of, you know, dressing all in black and starting to act the goth part that he would kind of carry up for the rest of his life. And I saw a theme was he was, like, he would want to write these stories early on, like his own style, but because it wouldn't work and no publishers would really pick up his stories, he had to turn into what he became famous for. That's true. 
he came he came of age wanting to be like Byron, but the difference between Poe and Byron is that Byron had family money. He was an English lord with like a literal castle. And oh, even wow. though he was a Spenrith guy, yeah, he was absolutely landed gentry, old money of England, aristocratic, blah, blah, blah. Poe was not that. Like they said, he was cut off by his wealthy foster family and he was absolutely dirt poor. So he couldn't just sit around and write romantic poetry like Byron. Uh, he had to write for the market and figure out how to sell his work because if he didn't, then his family didn't eat. So over time, he started to write these Gothic horror stories, which we associate him with now, right? We think of him as almost the inventor of Gothic horror. And it's actually true that that was on Poe's part, a massive sellout. He scoffed at those fine tingling stories, even as he churned them out. He was skeptical of them half the time. If you read them as an adult, you'll figure out that he's kind of joking or he's having it both ways. You can't tell if he's being totally serious all the time because in a way he sneered at those stories. And the funny thing is now that now that's why we love him. You know, those stories are assigned in, I read them in elementary school. A lot of people report reading things like the Telltale Heart in high school. Um, and Poe was deeply ambivalent about those. So even those famous ones that he's known for today, he, he just, he wasn't as big of a fan of them. He was ambivalent in his attitude. Sometimes he would be almost excessively proud of them. And then other times in his letters, he would be kind of being like poo-pooing them to his friends. But the, the thing that was always true is that he was writing them for money. If what? he had had his druthers, he probably would never have written those. Hmm. I remember hearing something like psychology, people like learning new skills, or they like striving towards things because it's a challenge. But then pro athletes who are at the top of the level or even actors or whatnot, once they've accomplished something and once they're so good at it, it just becomes boring to them because there's no mm. more gratification you don't reach any new levels so maybe you had some of that i think that's true yeah the, the people who are driven to achieve mastery are more driven by the quest than the outcome and then if the outcome becomes routine then it seems like most all of a lot of them go after something else at that stage so at this point in time he changes to appeal to the masses is he like is that it like he's well received he's making money now everybody he becomes famous at that point in time no actually um for all his canniness and adapting to the market the problem was that the state of american publishing at the time um, for various reasons in copyright law no one or very few writers could make any money from their productions um, Magazines paid almost nothing for freelance contributions or for their edit, you know, editor salaries. And American publishers were incredibly reluctant to ever pay for a book manuscript. So in this environment, even as Poe did produce some popular works, especially The Raven and The Goldbug, those were extremely well-received and popular. Um, he really earned very little for them. For instance, for The Raven, he earned $9. And that's in... Uh, $1,845. Adjusted for inflation, that's about $300. And if you think about how famous that poem is now to the point there's an NFL team, <laughs> they, yeah. they study it in schools across the world. They make fun of it on The Simpsons or well, they treat it <laughs> in episodes of The Simpsons. That's how well known it is. It's kind of stunning to think of how little he got for it. But those rates actually, I mean, freelance rates are still extremely low. So yeah, it's still like, I know blogs were a big thing some years ago, and even today, there's so many people trying to be writers, and you'll see blog posts here and there because it's a hard market to actually break through. I think you have experience with that yourself. Yeah, for yeah. sure. The example I always give is this book grew out of an article that went viral and that I wrote in 2017. Well, I was paid $25 for that original article. I'm not complaining, but that's what the rate was. These, I mean, you I know some people who manage to make a living freelancing. I have a day job because rates like $25. So yeah, it really hasn't changed um, since Poe's time, which is one reason he feels so contemporary. We're in this gig economy now, a creator economy in which a lot of people are struggling to 
monetize their creative work. And actually that struggle is way older than we know. We tend to think it's come about since the financial crisis of 2008 or the bust up of traditional like union jobs. But actually from the various early days of the mass media and even the earliest days of the Republic, you could say this has been going on. And that reminds me too, before we start recording, I told you about my interview with Dr. Ashley Frawley. One thing Mm. she mentions is when we picture the future, we either see it as this dystopian world fell apart or utopian, amazing. But when you think about it, it's probably going to be the same as today, just more technology stuff and whatnot. We'll still probably have political drama. We'll still probably have like issues between friends and family, and we'll still probably have good and bad, like just the same as today, just in the future. Yeah. I mean, if, especially if you think, like I think that human nature is probably universal across, I mean, to a great extent, at least across cultures and eras, like these experiences that we're having, they're not new. And one of the consolations of history is realizing that other people have had to deal with this stuff before and kind of learning how they approached it. Or the fact that they, with Poe, if you read his letters over, written over decades, he's constantly complaining about these same problems. And it's like the emails I exchange with my friends, (laughs) (laughs) complaining about your boss or this freelance gig that's going wrong or, you know, about a job that you didn't get. His letters read in detail about all those things. And speaking of like timeframes and all that stuff, one thing I found that made his writing style unique is at the time, I guess, horror stories or dark stories were just like dark horror stories. Like they were just a monster comes or whatever the story is. But in his case, he would make these dark stories have this underlining theme that like spans across Mm -hmm. generations. Like that's why he lives on today. Yeah, that's very true. There's always... Poe's always working on two levels. You know, there's a literal truth that he's describing and then there's a metaphorical truth. For instance, in one of the early stories, Manuscript Found in a Bottle, it's one of my favorites. Um, He's talking about a guy who survives a storm at sea only to be thrown onto another ship that is created by ghosts and then it gets sucked into a whirlpool. And I think if you read that as an adult, you realize that he's talking about despair and depression and the mental health struggles that many of us have even at the same time that the story is literally about you know this storm at sea and then the subsequent <laughs> ghosts and such yeah he's always he's kind of having it both ways in this brilliant way it's why I think we you're right that he continues to be read now because of the psychological insight that you often find in his work like his understanding of human nature and human emotion it's unbelievable that he was doing this stuff in the 1830s and 1840s. That unbelievable is why he's so famous now. <laughs> but Yeah, I mean, it still feels contemporary when you read him. Like it's, it feels like he's describing people you know, even yourself. <laughs> <laughs> also, side note, people like have to be geniuses in different regards. He must be a pure genius in the psychological aspect. I mean, a lot of people remark that Poe is a bad writer who just happened to be incredibly insightful. I don't know that, I don't think that it's true that he's a bad writer, but uh, there's qualities in his work beyond the, like, the literary quality that are really striking. One example I can think of is, um, The Imp of, of the Perverse is a half essay, half short story he wrote. And it's all about how we do things because we know we shouldn't do them. For instance, like when you stand on a cliff edge, maybe you look over the side and you kind of imagine what it would be like to fall. And it wasn't until the 1950s that psychologists came up with a term, like they found this phenomenon and named it psychological reactants. So Poe was describing psychological phenomenon before, you know, a hundred years before psychologists glommed on and started formalizing the theory. So in my mind, that's way more striking than his supposed scientific discoveries or intuitions. I agree with that. And back into his like literature technique. Another thing is one of your articles addresses how, well, two things. One, another reason he attacked other writers was because they would always use these like four step formats or something. And he was critical about that, even though he would use those same writing techniques. 
And then another thing is he always had the two-step formula to writing. So, I mean, in a sense, there's a formula to what he's doing. He was spoofing a very popular genre from the couple of decades of his young adulthood. Um, he did leave instructions. He, the thing about Poe is that whenever he did describe these things, like he would describe his writing process or um, the I, how to compose the ideal literature at the time, like he was almost always being sarcastic or outright lying at the same time. So even when he would, he, for instance, he described how he wrote the Raven according to this ultra precise formula. And I do not believe him for a minute that that's how it happened. Also, the detective stories that a lot of us know and love, like Poe's mysteries, he wanted, for instance, okay, take the mystery of Marie Roger, which is about the young woman whose body is found. Um, it was based on a real life case that was big in the newspapers in Poe's day. And Poe writing the story uh, said that he managed to figure out who really committed the crime, but that's not true. Poe changed the ending of the story years later when the actual, like the cause of death was actually discovered. He said in his original version, oh, a sailor killed the young woman. No, actually she probably, like it became very clear that she probably died of a botched abortion and her body was dumped. So Poe then, when he rewrote the story years later, he changed the ending to seem like he had known it all along. But his process of ratiocination or just, you know, detective work, it wasn't real. It didn't actually work. It didn't go that way, um, which I find very interesting. Did he have like a high ego or was it just he wanted oh, to? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he had a humongous one um, in some ways very justified because he was a genius. But also, he was very touchy and vain at moments. Back when his uh, wife was dying from tuberculosis, there was this other girl. I forget her name at the moment, but like she supposedly would send him letters saying she was completely obsessed and in love with him. And yeah, I, this yeah. is Francis Sergeant Osgood. Um, when The Raven came out in 1845, Poe was kind of the peak of his career. That was his big year, 1845. He was the editor of a newspaper for a brief time and his fame was really at its peak. The Raven came out and it was hugely popular in Europe and in the US. So at this time, he started to get a lot of attention from women, especially women who also wrote poetry and also went to the same kind of like salons and soirees in New York at the time. And he corresponded with one in particular, Francis Sargent Osgood, who's a poet. And they're, they also, he, since he was editor of that newspaper, he would publish things that she wrote to him and he would publish poems back to her publicly. And anybody could see this. And it's so, in a way, it's really bizarre that they would carry on like that in public. But Poe loved, seems to have loved women paying a lot of attention to him. He had a kind of mommy complex in a very understandable way, I think because he lost his own mother. So he loved to be kind of coddled and petted by women in that way. So he let this go on until it kind of blew up publicly when yet another fan got involved and there were fistfights and trying to borrow a gun and oh. everyone getting their names dragged through the dirt for this you know, series of public flirtations. And we don't associate Poe with these things. I'm not suggesting he wasn't, he wasn't involved with these women on any level beyond correspondence is how I read that situation. But they were definitely flirtatious relationships that he was having. Gotcha. And I didn't figure out the answer to it, but this one girl in particular that uh, supposedly was obsessed with Poe and Poe, there's another girl, like I think, who uh, Poe just did not like. Like he would try to push her away, keep her at bay. Well, there was one in that time of the blow up in 1845. And then after Virginia's death, he was involved in the same kind of way with a number of different women, um, including up there in Rhode Island in Providence. And one of those women who was like kind of an obsessive fan, he absolutely did keep at arm's length. Um, those so relationships, if anything, are even weirder than the ones that came before. 
Okay, so um, the part that I was confused about was I saw something like supposedly he may have even been writing himself these letters and that girl never existed, but she actually was a real fan who was obsessed with him. I mean, there were times when he conducted correspondences with himself. I'm not aware of one with any woman that he did. Um, he did have a number of correspondences with women, which were, you know, two-sided, someone on, on each end of that. And some of them he uh, ended up kind of discarding over time. Gotcha. Okay. All right. So then earlier on, we mentioned alcohol and said we'd come back to it. That's why he was fired from jobs. That's why his life was sort of a mess because he was a functional alcoholic. I, I think it might be overstatement to say that he was definitely an alcoholic. He, America at this time, and Jackson in America in the 1830s and 1840s, people drank on average three times what they do today. The average person who could drink, which is to say white men, they were drinking gallons and gallons of pure alcohol each year because you might posit that there was no therapy. There was <laughs> the conditions of life were very difficult. Everyone, because of the nature of infectious disease in their day and the lack of medical care, medical technology, you lost people all the time. Um, so I, in a way, you could say that the level of heavy drinking was a response to this. And Poe's really was no different. It was really kind of in line with what other people were doing. And so if he was an alcoholic, the entire country was, in a sense. But also Poe was not a guy who drank every single day. He was a binge drinker who, when he was actively drinking every couple of weeks or months, he would out, fall off the wagon in spectacular fashion and embarrass himself and then cringe about this for ages afterwards and swear that he was going to change. And then eventually the stress would get to him again and he would do it all over again. None of that's admirable, but admirable behavior. Whether it meets a clinical definition of alcoholism in our time, it's hard to say. Gotcha. And one of the most noteworthy binges that he experiences is actually he gets like an editor job and then goes missing and then they find him dead. Uh, well, there was a, a binge, and I want to say 1843. This is years before his death, uh, where he was trying to get a government job. So he went from Philadelphia down to DC, kind of knocking on doors, trying to figure out how he could get some government sinecure. And it didn't work out. And so he ended up drinking a whole lot on that trip. He kind of, he never fared when he, well, when he was away from home. So he got really drunk. And then when he came home, he wrote all these apology letters. And he also eventually wrote later that year, The Black Cat, which is one of his stories that's very clearly about alcoholism and kind of the spiral down. Um, as to his death, I don't think that the evidence suggests that he was necessarily drunk at the time of his death. Um, when he was found, this is 1849, he goes, he leaves Richmond to go, uh, and, and then is found a few days later in Baltimore. No one knows where he was in those intervening days. He's discovered in a ditch outside a tavern wearing someone else's clothes. Uh, the doctors who treated him changed their stories so many times, uh, but in their initial reports, if you think those are the most reliable, they're not talking about drunkenness. But Poe never regained consciousness or compos mentis to the point where he could tell anyone what had happened to him. I think it's quite possible he was simply ill and that maybe his ill health was brought on by bouts of heavy drinking, but whether he was in an alcoholic stupor at the time of death, I don't think that's probably true. It's hard to say, you know, the, the historical record is kind of patchy on the point. So for like a few days at the end, he's sort of, he's like mentally ill. He's speaking like gibberish and then he like eventually dies as a result. Yeah. That's basically how it goes. He <clears throat> is found. And then just a few days later, he dies in the hospital and he never regains consciousness to the point where he can tell anyone what's going on. Like nobody knows for sure, but your theory is it's like just some mental sickness or just the pure stress of everything got to him. I don't think those things were helping. Um, I think if you 
look to early 1849. So he dies in October 1849. If you look to the beginning of that year, his friends and Poe himself are saying that he's in bad health and that something's kind of wrong. And he started acting really strange over the summer. So I think something, whatever was affecting him started well before that October and that it was probably both psychological and physical. Uh, I'm not a doctor. I've asked neuroscientists about what they think it might've been. And everyone I've spoken to has just said it's impossible to know. All right. And then, so the time comes, he dies. So he gives all his writings to a guy named Rufus Griswold, if I'm correct. And Mm -hmm. that ends up being a very important factor in why he's famous. Yeah, this is true. Griswold was a sometimes friend, colleague, uh, someone who traveled in literary circles like Poe, and they had had run-ins before. Poe seems not to have known that Griswold absolutely hated his guts. Griswold's claim to be Poe's literary executor. We don't know if that really happened, but he definitely claimed it after Poe's death. And almost, I mean, literally immediately, he wrote the obituary for Poe. He was saying the meanest, nastiest things about Poe right away. And then when he brought out Poe's works after, you know, months, three years after Poe's death, he was repeating those same things and even going so far as to forge Poe's letters make him look worse than he actually was so the guy just looked to torpedo Poe's reputation but the funny thing about this is people love a scandal right they love notoriety and so all this bad press that Poe got because of Griswold ended up helping his career he became notorious people started reading his work more and more so the bad press actually seems to have served him wow yeah one of the one thing he said was, few will miss him now that he's dead, which I'm sure there's worse stuff too, but even that's just brutal. Yeah, he said no one is going to grieve this guy. He had no friends. And that's not a verbatim quote, but it's essentially what Griswold said. And, I mean, that's a. it takes some kind of character to say something like that about someone who's just died. Uh, but Griswold was a nasty guy. He was just a complete sleaze. If you get any Poe fan or Poe academic going on him, oh, wow, everybody hates that guy for obvious reasons. But in a way, he gave the world Poe in a sense. Yeah, like his whole goal was to ruin Poe's credibility, but karma, look what happened. (laughs) Right. He ended up attracting so much attention that might not otherwise have come. All right. So that's Poe's history summarized. What made, in particular, what made you even want to write this book? I am. Uh, I'm from Richmond too, like Poe. Richmond's one of the places that claims that Poe's a hometown kid. So I grew up with him. I, I remember meeting him in elementary school and being very struck by the work, especially the Raven, but also the stories. And then I kind of grew up and forgot about him. And uh, a couple of years ago, uh, it was late 2016 or so, I just fell into this horrible depression and I started, I don't know what it was. I had some intuition and I started to reread Poe for the first time since I was a little kid, since elementary school. And all of a sudden I saw that second level we've been talking about, the the psychological insight, the metaphors for mental health struggles. And it was an incredibly moving experience. It was like meeting a fellow traveler and it made me feel less alone. And uh, I was also just absolutely struck by the, complexity of his work and so I got then I started getting into his letters and the biographies and it really pulled me out of this dark place in a strange way yeah it's weird that like the dark writing the dark theme pulls you out of that there's you know that saying it's like steer into the skin sometimes I think that can work I think that's what this was that wasn't conscious at the time Um, anyway so I started one night I was out having a beer with a friend of mine I was like, the weirdest thing is going on. Poe, a girl in Poe is cheering me up. And my friend was like, that sounds like a book. And so now here we are. I wrote it down on a cocktail napkin, and that's how that started. Hmm. Fair enough. I like that. Good story to write a story. (laughs) 
yeah, it's got to come from somewhere, I guess. So what's an example of self-help? So we talked a bit about how if, say, you're at your rock bottom, make a spectacle in a way. Like, what's a little bit of philosophy or, as your chapters go, philosophy? <laughs> there you go. Um, one thing I talk about early on in the book, even in the section about childhood, is how if you have a neurotic personality, if you're prone to anxiety and worry and overthinking, actually, these things are strengths. And you should lean in and seek to activate your neuroses at a greater level rather than to control those things. Like maybe those things are your superpower. They are what make you you. They're what made Poe Poe. So I don't think that we should necessarily fight those parts of our nature so much as look to what we can get out of them. Gotcha. Fair enough. The reviews and descriptions say this is a dark book and Edgar Allan Poe is a dark poet. But what makes your book a dark book? I'd like to think that it's kind of darkness played for laughs in a sense. The same way as Edgar's stories were kind of that too, where he would like laugh at it. Yeah. yeah, right. If you read them as an adult, you realize like that they're full of, that they're satires in a sense, like and very keen satires. So my book's a satire too. I kind of tried to take that example of Poe using a popular form and having it both ways where it's both sincere and it's satirical because I love that element of his work. I think it's one reason like I can reread him continually. Um, I also think that most self-help, like self-help is a very needed category and yet most of it is just really cheap. You know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and be a girl boss and whatnot. That doesn't really offer any real comfort to anyone, especially if you're in a dark place. And I know something about dark places. Um, so I wanted to write a book that would actually speak to people in really difficult moments because Poe knew those things were real. Um, you know, I've had my own experience in them too. And really people should have the option of much more like self-help that actually addresses some really dark realities. We have to, like, how would you not, how would you address like the human experience without talking about things like death and loss and disappointment and you know, your professional career. That's the meat. <laughs> that's what it is. It's not all there is, but that's part of it. Yeah, absolutely. I um, I forget if it was the Duncan Trussell podcast or I think it was the Duncan Trussell podcast. But yeah, like death is this. Oh, you, you don't talk about that. And like they dive into how God, dark topic, but like they fill up the body. So you sort of see this post death mummy like version of the person and all of this stuff when actually address it for what it is you have to appreciate it almost versus this whole thing that oh the word death nope i'm gonna look away from that right like if you don't address reality and even the darkest reality is like how can you come to any level of acceptance or ability to function and actually deal with the world and experience as it is yeah. it helps us more than it hurts us to confront dark realities. Sounds good. Well, no. I mean, <laughs> we wouldn't want, no one would choose it, right? It's just yeah. how things are. I think that's a good point. Nice light-hearted spot to end the episode. <laughs> <laughs> that's not all the book is. The book is also, I mean, meant to be humorous. And I noticed people talking about that in the reviews of that, which is nice to see. Yeah, the... One of the quotes on the cover, insightful, funny, and important. So there you go, the humor side. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Catherine Babnagira, thanks so much for coming out to the show. Well, thank you for having me. This was really fun. I'm a big fan. Thank you. And the last thing, is there any final message that you want to tell the audience? Poe is actually a hopeful figure. We think of him as this dark goth lord and a drunk who screwed up everything and those things are true as well but also because of those personal qualities we know him today so maybe there's hope for all of us in our own weirdness you can check out our book poe for your problems uncommon advice from history's least likely self-help guru and if you're listening through the podcast you'll see a link for that in the description and if you're on the radio Check out the podcast. Go to podcasttheway.com. Highly recommend it. 
give a five-star rating refuse share all that every little bit helps that's podcasttheway.com this is fm 91.7 whus stores at the top of the hour and as always deuces this has been the way podcast if you want to know more about the way podcast go to podcasttheway.com <laughs>